Hello, hello. Hello. Hello, can we settle down a little bit? Sorry uh, to have such a good program, but we're out in the hall. But uh, if we can come in or just sit in the aisles or sit up front and not push each other. There, there are, there's room in the aisles, I think, if we can just sort of settle down. And um, everybody's here, uh, and our, including our panelists, thank God. <laughs> Uh, this is the second event of uh, Penn Women's Committee. Uh, the first was uh, readings and reception of a Central American women poets in the fall. Um, our group has been chaired by Grace Paley and then chaired by uh, Meredith Tax, who's been deeply involved in the uh, formation of uh, the Penn Women's Committee. Um, the first half of the program deals with literary relationships in the past. We'll begin with Mary Gordon, who will put uh, the program in context in both the past and present, now and in the second half. Uh, Mary Gordon has written three novels, Final Payment, <laughs> Company of Women, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't read my shorthand, Men and Angels, and she has a new book of short stories just published, Temporary Shelter. She's also written essays. Uh, <coughs> the first speaker, after Mary uh, uh, will be Nancy Milford, who will speak on Eleanor Wiley and Edna St. Vincent Millay. Uh, Ms. Milford published uh, Zelda, which was her doctoral dissertation from Columbia. She's been a Guggenheim Fellow and is a Bard Center Fellow, or sister, and is has uh, been working for many years on a biography of Edna St. Vincent Millay. Uh, the next speaker will be uh, <coughs> Sylvia Tenenbaum, on Caroline van uh, Gunderode and Bettina van Arnheim and their influence on Krista Wolf. Ms. Tannenbaum has published uh, two novels, Yesterday's Street and Rachel the Rabbi's Wife. She's working on a new novel. Uh, she was born in Frankfurt am Main, which is the same town as uh, the characters that she will speak about. Vivian Gornick <coughs> will speak on uh, Zona Gale and Marjorie Latimer. She's the author of An American Woman in Egypt, The Romance of American Communism, Communism, Essays in Feminism, and her uh, most recent book is a memoir called Fierce Attachments. I, uh, Esther Broner, will speak on women's voices from the Walter Luther Labor Archives. I've published five books, including uh, the novels Her Mothers and A Weave of Women. I've published plays, and I'm currently on an NEA uh, writing a new novel. Uh, we'll speak for uh, about 10 minutes each 
uh, then a brief intermission, and then I'll introduce the next presenters. And uh, Lindsay Abrams has arranged for WBAI uh, to tape this program, so we will probably be able to hear it over that station. I have to start out by being a cop or a nun, depending upon which role you prefer to put me in. We're very delighted to have you here. We're tremendously glad to see all this support for a women's event and for an event of the Women's Committee. However, we have to be well-behaved and gentle with each other. Don't push, don't shove, don't carry on. <coughs> At the end of the first section, there will be an exceedingly brief intermission. You may not leave the room unless <laughs> <laughs> if you're having a heart attack, raise your hand. Okay? You can get up. We may do aerobics. We may not. I'm not sure. But you can get up and stretch. Please don't leave the room because it will be utter chaos. Okay? Um, and other than that, I expect good behavior. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what I mean. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about uh, why we're here and how we got here. Um, why did we settle on this particular topic? We, in the Women's Committee, which is a wonderful committee, and it makes you think that maybe something can happen good in the world when you come to the Women's Committee. There's a lot of good cheer and um, support. Can you, you can't hear me? We decided that we wanted to do uh, an event which would which would really touch the the lives of of women and men in their uh, role as writers and readers. So we decided to think about what we what did we talk about? What were we really about as a committee? We came up with several wonderful ideas for programs which we may do in the future. We talked about women in aging. We talked about women in war. Uh, we talked about how is it that women do that very odd thing, become writers. One of the issues that we kept coming back to was that it is more difficult for a woman to give herself the permission to write than it is for a man. Luisa Valenzuela said last week in, a, in another uh, context that whereas men can say, they are writing for love. A woman knows that with every word she writes, she is taking the risk of losing love. Um, sh a woman needs more support when she is starting out particularly. Where does this support come from? When I trying to answer these questions among ourselves, we began to wonder if our experiences were in fact common, and we began to think that perhaps there were, that in many of our lives there had been strong relationships uh, with other women that had been very formative to us, which was not to say that our relationships with men had not been formative as well, and that some of us had not had those very good relationships also. But what we began to come to was the notion that for women writers, there was a, a different, perhaps a different model. This is what we're going to explore tonight. I remember our talking about Harold Bloom's notion that a strong poet has to kill the father in order to write the poem that he is going to write. I think Bloom would probably say he has to kill the father's poem. Um, 
But we began to think that this was probably not the way that most women writers proceeded. First of all, we didn't have so many mothers that we could afford to go killing them off quite so cavalierly. Being scarcer, they had to be treasured. This was true both of the living women that we knew in our actual lives and the mentors who had died before perhaps we even came to birth, writers who had gone before us, whom we felt very, very nourished by. What we felt as women writers was not a sense of competition with the women writers living and dead who had gone before us, but a sense of continuity, a sense of, of being nourished by them. In the course of, of our conversations about it, we thought of, of something interesting, which was that the, the myths of the father and son often include a murder of the son by the father. If you look at the Demeter and Persephone myth, it is the opposite of a murder. It is a nurturing, it is a rescue, it is a kind of resurrection that women do for one another. What we're trying to see this evening is if these things actually do apply, if there is a model for women writers that is different from the model for men writers, not a competitive um, wish to kill, but perhaps a nurturing wish to foster. I think we want to be very careful about not being too romantic about this. Um, women, because of being born women, are not free from what in my neighborhood used to be called original sin. Um, and none of us are so foolish to believe that simply because two women are writers and women, they are going to be helpful to each other. Even if they're being helpful, there may be strains and undercurrents in that help that can cause problems. There, are some, there is not only the nurturing mother or the nurturing sister model, there is the odd model of the woman writer who liked being the only girl that was allowed to play with the boys and doesn't want to open up the game. That's another model. There can be the model of the woman who says, it was hard for me, why shouldn't it be hard for you? All these things certainly do come to the fore. We're going to talk about that a little bit tonight, too. So I hope you'll see that we're not in, in some fantasy land of, of impossible sisterhood where, where no cloud darkens the horizon. Nevertheless, I think what, what we have come to in our discussions, and, and I think we'll see again tonight, is that there is in our committee, there is among us women, um, there is, when women get together, particularly as self-conscious feminists, I think, to gather, a kind of spirit that just doesn't happen when it is a group of men or it is a mixed group. I have been at many conferences, both of all women and, or not so many of all women, but many conferences, a couple of which recently have been all women. There has been a kind of laughter there. Uh, there has been a kind of no-nonsense. There's been a, a kind of determination to get down to real life. Uh, not so much posturing, I think, as I have seen when there are two sexes present. Um, I'll just tell you a funny story that happened last week, and then I'll, and then I'll end. Uh, there were a group of 
women, all of us, I think, rather um, intelligent, talking in a very, very heated way about the role of the body. The body's a very trendy topic now, right? And the female body in all sorts of contexts, political, moral, literary, aesthetic, iconographic, you name it. We suddenly came to a shoe store. <laughs> and all these women stopped. <laughs> One person said, I have to get a birthday present for my daughter. We all looked for a birthday present. Then we all tried on shoes. We were talking about whether the, the female body as metaphor was really central to every political act that had been taken. Then we brought out the shoes, and I said, I don't know if I can buy these. I have a lot of print skirts. <laughs> the other woman stopped in mid-sentence as talking about the political import of the symbolic presence of the woman's body and said, oh, this year you can do prints with prints. They're not too busy. <laughs> um, we then went shopping for a present for one of the women's daughters. It is this kind of flowing in and out of the most abstract and the most concrete that I think is the particular genius of women's relationships to each other. Uh, not that they are cloudless relationships, not that they are free of strain, but something happens, and it is something new in the world. And I think that's what we want to talk about tonight. Thank you. Nancy. and sort of uh, surprised. Uh, I am not going to talk about Eleanor Wiley and Edna Millett. Uh, it was my understanding when I agreed that something which Mary said uh, was very persuasive to me, and it was about the mentor relationship uh, that exists between women. In the course of writing this biography, um, which has taken a very long time indeed, and but a great portion of my life, I was astonished to find that whereas in the life of Edmund Wilson or Scott Fitzgerald or almost any other male figure that I had read about or done research about, their universities, if they went to them, uh, kept records not only of their grades but of who their roommates were and their relationships with each other, where their great deans, uh, for instance, at Princeton, Christian Gao, uh, or their great professors, um, many, of many of the men in, in, in Fitzgerald's class, for instance, at Princeton, uh, had written about these figures and their influence on their lives, uh, intellectually determining, uh, either in rebellion against it or in complicity with it, the tact that, uh, that their careers had taken. Those men, those deans, those uh, people served as mentor figures in the most profound way. And I thought to myself, 
Wouldn't the same be true of, of women if they had gone to school or if there were any records kept? And I found that records had either been systematically destroyed, uh, were not valued enough to have been kept, to find out uh, uh, who Edna Millay's roommates were at Vassar was indeed a very difficult uh, problem and should not have been. So I felt as if I was breaking a kind of ground that I felt privileged to have thought of and irritated uh, to find so difficult uh, to just do the primary research, to just get the goods, which is one of the things a biographer has to have before uh, she can continue, uh, she can really begin to write. Uh, Malay was uh, a very poor girl uh, from Camden, Maine. Uh, and I'm selecting to read a little tiny portion of this manuscript, uh, not, not about her, her uh, life at Vassar, uh, to which she was sent uh, by a uh, very uh, astute woman who was an administrator, the dean of the uh, YWCA uh, in New York and then nationally, uh, Caroline Dow, got the funds together uh, which put Malay through Vassar. Uh, it was very difficult for me to find out who the other women were who contributed the funds. Once I got to them, or to their children, or their nieces, or their grandchildren in, in many cases, uh, they were very happy to speak to me. But it was, I'm just saying that the primary research was awfully difficult to do. Um, so Malay was helped by this Miss this, this Caroline Dow, who was herself a graduate of Vassar. And it established a kind of pattern which was to be immensely important in her life. Uh, um, and I'd like to read you something about it. She graduates from Vassar by the skin of her teeth. I mean, she's literally kicked out. And then they, they she says at one point in the letter to her mother that they send her to greet her as if it were a cod, uh, that she'd come over the fence to get in and she was going to go back over the fence to get out. Uh, she wrote, however, the baccalaureate hymn and was permitted back on campus to conduct it. Uh, the baccalaureate poem was also hers, but she was not permitted to attend uh, the graduation ceremonies. She decided, uh, and she was a, a quite splendid student, by the way, uh, she decided to come to New York where she wanted to make a career in uh, theater or writing or she wasn't really sure what. Remember, extremely poor. And this is a 1917. She is, oh, she's, by the way, she doesn't get to college till she's 21. So she's four years older than the rest of the girls throughout that period. Uh, oh, there are going to be a couple of names that you will never have heard of. Uh, one is described in the text. Uh, the other is Elizabeth Hazelton Haight, who was, along with Grace McCurdy, who's mentioned a lot by Mary McCarthy. McCurdy did Greek, and Haight did uh, Latin at Vassar. So they were very powerful professors. Uh, one of them became dean of something or other up there. And I don't know. Anyway, uh, this is called The Escape Artist. Um, she'd been in New York only a week when she decided to go home in time for baked beans on Saturday night, she wrote Norma, her sister. I'm enclosing two bucks to make sure of the baked beans, honey. It was the wrong time to find a job in the city, for it was not only expensive, but it was already hot in June. She would come home with Kathleen, do a big wash, Kathleen was her baby sister, and get to her writing. Quote, and home is the best place to do that. I could write in the summer and maybe sell something and then come back in the fall, whether I have a job or not. I wish you could come back with me. 
but that would leave mother alone. It was hard to tell what she wanted most right now, and she equivocated. She said she needed to wash and to mend and to make over her clothes. She said she had some writing she ought to do, and she admitted to a perfect passion for earning money. I don't care much how I earn it, just feel I have to hurry around all the time and make money, end quote. But the only thing she was clearly determined to do was to return to New York in the fall, and she wanted to have Norma, Norma Molay, that's her sister, with her. We would have such a good time if we had some tiny, dirty, uncomfortable room somewhere down in a disreputable district. That's where I'm staying now, way down on West 4th Street. <laughs> Darling, I wish we could arrange it so that you could be here with me next winter. Don't you suppose we can? There's nothing for you there. Her sister was still in Camden. I'm sorry, I didn't say that. There's nothing for you there at all, and I've always wanted to bring you out here with me. I'm sure we can fix it up some way. Don't you suppose Mother could get a job editing some dumb page in some dumb newspaper? She might. She writes such beautiful English, and she's so funny. She could try. At least there's no reason for sticking in Camden. Very few people understood better than she did just how little there was for Norma in Camden, Maine, in 1917. And no one knew as precisely as Vincent Millay that both Kathleen and she had a far greater chance for a larger life than had Norma. Even the convention of leaving one unmarried sister at home to care for an aging mother was not going to become a pattern in their lives. If one got out, they all would. That was the tacit bargain struck within their family. But the burden of getting out, as well as the route of escape, depended upon Vincent Millay. None of them seemed to recognize the weight of that responsibility, that she might feel equivocal about it, or even the literal cost of achieving it. How could she begin to manage? Now, I'm doing something kind of funny in this biography, so stick with me a minute. There's a break here, and we're going to fall into a different, perhaps, typeface. Uh, this is Norma Millay speaking to me. I was the one at home, you see. Looking back at my life, I felt there was this one time I might have done something different, something with my life. I was keeping house. That's all I was doing. I remember Mother on the telephone motioning toward me, and I heard her say, no, my daughter is at school, but I have another daughter. And I thought, no. It was for something down in Rockland, Maine. Vincent, you see, had been the one to do that sort of thing, and not I. But I did go, and I recited, and it must have gone well, for the next thing was I received a letter from the women's suffrage movement in Boston saying they heard I spoke and would I speak for them. But I never did. I've often wondered what would have happened to me if I had. My whole life might have been different. But I was the one at home, you see. Looking back, I felt it was the one time something in my life. I even did an awful thing, Nancy, and left a little old lady upstairs. She used the bedroom, and of course it was sort of a pest. Here I had the whole house to myself. I could do what I pleased. I suppose I thought I was making a few bucks. But I had a moment in that house, on those stairs, in Camden, thinking, what the hell am I doing? I'm 22. What am I doing here? Or, I'm lonely. I'm sure it was indigestion. Don't you think it was indigestion? But I had a few moments, and I sat down, and I looked out the window, and I thought, shall I tap on the window and beckon her? Our neighbor, Mrs. Morrow, was putting her clothes out on the line, and I could see her 
and I might have called to her, but I didn't. It was panic. It was indigestion. Premonition. It wasn't... All right, I don't know what it was, but I've never forgotten that moment on the stairs. Mother was out canvassing hair work. She could have been anywhere in northern Maine. And Kathleen was in that school in New Jersey for girls, and Vincent was at Vassar for girls. And I had nothing, having no way, no control of myself, no control of your life. But Jesus, how I wanted to. I couldn't call anybody. I was just a girl walking upstairs in a lonely house. She made two important decisions that summer that were abiding. She would return to New York in the fall, and she would publish a book of her poems with Mitchell Kennelly. Both decisions were crucial, and they were linked. She needed help, and she turned to those who could most directly help her. Edith Wynne Matheson, the English actress, who had appeared on Broadway that winter in King Henry VIII, had written her friend Elizabeth Hazelton Haight in June that there was a good chance of an opening for Vincent in a summer stock company in Milwaukee. When the season had not worked out, she again wrote Miss Haight, telling her this time that she'd arranged an introduction for Vincent Millay to a theatrical manager in New York. Vincent must wear, quote, her prettiest frock, but above all else, she was, quote, not to despair. If she gets no work for the summer, something will surely come for the fall. Two days later, she wrote directly to Millay, inviting her to their summer home in Connecticut, assuring her, quote, that I shall ultimately be able to find something for you. Don't be downhearted, the letter continued, and do keep in touch with me, and let me know where you are and everything you are doing. I hold out my hand to you in love and in sisterly fellowship. Take it in full belief of my sincerity. So Vincent did. She took her almost entirely at her word. Edith Wynne Matheson had a majestic beauty and an imperious courtesy. She was tall and dark-haired, full-breasted and wide-browed with creamy skin, and at 40-odd, she looked like a dark duchess. But it was her voice that won audiences to her. Rich and passionate, passionate it suggested, just as her letters to Vincent did, a larger and charmed world that only she had access to. Within the year, Malay would write in tribute to that voice, if I should lose my hearing, I, two senses would have lost thereby. There having passed beyond my reach at once my hearing and your speech. Here was someone more self-assured than Vincent had met before. Edith would tell her she was afraid of nothing but fire and Malay was as attracted to that dashing and high-handed confidence as she was to the offered friendship of the actress herself. She was also, of course, enthralled by Mrs. Kennedy's promises, that she might promise more than she could deliver, or that she might make such promises out of an expansive and theatrical disposition did not seem to occur to her. She wrote to her now as she had never written to Miss Dow as her first husband, or Miss Haight, for even in her first letters, there was remarkably little restraint. She declared herself openly. You wrote me a beautiful letter. I wonder if you meant it to be as beautiful as it was. I think you did, for somehow I know that your feelings for me, however slight it is, is of the nature of love. 
I was sure of that the night of my play in Poughkeepsie. I like to think that it's true, and nothing that has happened to me for a long time has made me so happy as I shall be to visit you sometime. You must not forget that you spoke of that, because it would disappoint me cruelly. Listen, if ever in my letters to you or in my conversation you see a candor that seems almost crude, please know that it is because when I think of you, I think of real things and become honest, and quibbling and circumspection seem very inconsiderable. And she fled to Maine. Told by Miss Haight to wear only her best, she found everything she had, quote, in tatters. With Edith Wynne Matheson's uh, uh, introduction in hand, she could not bear to seem a dismal outlook to a theatrical manager in New York. Mrs. Kennedy took three weeks to answer her letter. Yes, my child, it is love that is in my heart, but beware, I am terribly demanding of those whom I love. They have to strive, might and main, to live up to the ideal I have of them. I am beautifully tolerant of the failings of those whom I do not love, but my poor friends I treat the same way I treat myself. Do you think you can stand it? <laughs> she signed herself with love. Vincent answered her by, by return mail. And twice within her letter, she told her that she would do whatever Edith wanted her to do, whatever Edith told her to do, and then this. I'll finish this page on that trip. Right? Love me, please, I love you. I can bear to be your friend, so ask of me anything and hurt me whenever you must, but never be tolerant or kind. And never say to me again, don't dare to say to me again, any way you can make a trial of being friends with me, because I can't do things in that way. I am not a tentative person. Whatever I do, I give up my whole self to it. And it may be a trial, of course, most things are, I suppose, but I am never conscious of making a trial. I am conscious only of doing the thing that I love and that I have to do. Anyway, Mrs. Kennedy backs off a little after that letter. But the point of it is that, uh, that she helps her in New York, uh, not with uh, uh, the producers that she has promised her, uh, but with uh, the connections which are even going to turn out to be more, more important to her. Uh, she had a series of women, in other words, who were squarely on her side and were immensely uh, supportive and helpful. And there was, in the nature of that relationship, money which exchanged hands, uh, jobs which were helpful, and a kind of affection which was sometimes helpful and sometimes distorted. Um, and I guess uh, I, I have a time limit, so, so that's it. <laughs> Sylvia Tannenbaum is going to speak. Hi, um, I'm Sylvia Tannenbaum. I was supposed to say my name again. Is it? Is it? Can you hear me? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm delighted there's such a big crowd, and um, I've just come back from Virginia where I worked on my last latest novel. 
so what I did actually, because I know we're going to have a terrific evening, uh, I wrote my uh, little piece out so that, because I knew that if I started to sort of free wheel it, uh, wing it, it would I would never end. Uh, the the um, so as I said, I've, I've I've typed it out, and I will try to stick to my script. Um, but I just wanted to say that um, the the two women that I'm going to talk about really, uh, you know, are kind of distant from us in time, and uh, not only that, but in culture. And uh, I did want to speak about Christa Wolf, who uh, somehow led me to them. But it got too long, and I thought, well, perhaps I can go back and I can uh, uh, write a real long piece about it and uh, get all my ideas into it together. But the thing was that, that, that this book, which is uh, called Die Günderode, which, which was written by Bettina von Arnhem in 1839, has an essay by Christa Wolf as an epilogue. And uh, the essay was so wonderful and so perceptive uh, and it has never been translated that I decided that I would translate it. Uh, and that was how I really got into the book. And um, I did translate it, but I mean, uh, uh, not, not, not very cleanly. Uh, but I just wanted to say that, that it's interesting that I was brought to a couple of writers, women who were very close to each other for a very brief period in their lives, by another writer, uh, a contemporary of mine uh, from East Germany, whom I've feel very close to somehow, though I only met her once when she spoke with Grace here uh, in New York, and I had a very nice letter from her, but um, I, I, as I said, I feel very much as though she is my, my sister and my friend. Uh, but I will largely now tell you about the two, two women I've chosen uh, uh, whose friendship um, is, uh, is very uh, important in their work. I'll take my glasses off. Uh, Bettina von Arnhem and Caroline von Günderode were born five years apart. Uh, Carolina was the older, in 1785 and 1780, respectively. In terms of German literary history, this places them squarely in the generation of the early Romantics, the generation born at the time of the composition of The Sorrows of Young Werther, the generation that came of age in the years around 1800, heirs to the Enlightenment, heirs to the French Revolution, heirs to a vision of Greece that was both classicizing and romantic, sunstruck and full of hope and idealism. Both women were born into the upper bourgeoisie, though the circumstances of their lives were quite different. Bettina's father was a successful merchant in Frankfurt am Main named Brentano, whose family had emigrated from the region around Lake Como in Italy. Her mother was Maximiliana von La Roche, daughter herself of a famous writer, Sophie La Roche, who wrote novels that were uh, read by many women in the uh, 18th century. And uh, Sophie herself counseled free freedom in love and all other things, but saw to it that both her daughters married well. And in a sense, she buried both of them because uh, Bettina's mother, um, uh, had 12 children, and um, uh, of course not all of them lived, and uh, herself died in 1793. Uh, uh, but um, anyway, Frankfurt in the 18th century, and Frankfurt, which is the city where I was born, uh, uh, also makes uh, Bettina dear to me because I see her within a context that uh, I myself remember in a way. 
uh, was a very tolerant and enlightened free city which had for centuries been hospitable to immigrants, Italians, French, Jews, whatever they might be, who would contribute to enrichment, to, uh, to the city's enrichment. Uh, besides its Brentanos and La Roche, Italians and French, it counted its Rothschilds. Um, both Bettina's parents died when she was quite young. Her mother, as I said, uh, in 1793, her father, who had been 19 years older than his wife in 1797. But there was much liveliness and many festivities in the houses of her youth. She lived variously with a grandmother and an, half, an older half-brother. There was none of that in the young life of Carolina. She, the daughter of an impoverished family of the landed gentry, was forced to enter a stift, which is a home for young ladies without means, usually administered by a religious order, but not quite a convent. The only escape from such a place would have been an advantageous marriage, which Carolina's financial plight was unlikely to encourage. We see then that the two young women, though from similar backgrounds, experienced childhood and youth quite differently, in addition to which Bettina was by nature ebullient, impish, while Carolina was rather serious-minded, perhaps even rigid in her self-containment. If they were both lonely creatures, the one was lonely in a crowd, the other lonely and alone. In the Frankfurt of 1800, they moved in the same circles and met when Bettina was 16 and Carolina 21. We may be sure, however, that Carolina's 21 was a mature age, while Bettina's 16 was relatively childish. She had a tendency to play the child anyway, in order to gain attention for herself and to, to be forgiven for her forwardness, her exuberant, exuberant rudeness. This must have made her quite trying to be with, and many took against her then and later. And of course, Christa Walsh in her introduction, in her epilogue, does mention that, that this was just a, a, a feminine kind of way of, of, of you know, making herself liked uh, to, play, to play this role of child uh, far too many years uh, past the time that she should have uh, quit. Uh, the Frankfurt Circle that was their meeting ground was a distinguished one, enlightened, romantic, republican. It included Clemens Brentano, Bettina's brother, Arnim von Ach, uh, Achim von Arnim, a Prussian, actually, who was Clemens's friend and later Bettina's husband. Clemens and Achim undertook a journey down the mine and the Rhine in 1802 to gather the folk songs and poems that would be gathered together under the title Des Knaben Wunderhorn, a seminal collection of folk art which brought them together also with the Brothers Grimm. There was also Isaac Sinclair, the friend of Hölderlin, the lyric poet and a political radical, and the jurist Friedrich Karl von Savigny, who was married to Bettina's sister Gunda. So you see there was a whole circle in which these women moved, and in a sense moved quite freely, I think, for that time, uh, they, uh, uh, th th there was uh, the darkness of Victorian uh, sexism has not yet descended. Uh, the period may well be summed up in the words which are the subtitle of a biography of Bettina, uh, Romanticism, Revolution, and Utopia. These concepts played a large role in the thoughts and ideals of that generation and explain why there was so much interest shown during this turbulent 60s of this century in that very time. Both Ingeborg Dravis's biography of Bettina and a Shelley biography by uh, Richard Holmes were conceived during the decade of after 1960. 
As you can see then, the friendship between the two young women takes place within the larger context of the early romantic movement in Germany, a time too when passionate friendships were valued without their erotic content being stressed perhaps, and an androgynous character was often in evidence. The period may seem to be seen very clearly reflected in Bettina's writings. It is a period with which in painting too, I have great sympathy for, for that she had deep affection. There was a radicalism, which I've always admired, and its sun-drenched classicism, its optimism not yet dimmed by the black clouds of smoke that the Industrial Revolution would bring. The monsters of technology were still asleep, though let us note, note that it was a woman, Mary Shelley, who for all time named that monster. It was a period, too, when women, we're speaking here of women of the upper class, of course, lived relatively unconstrained lives. Even the fashions of the period, so Greek, so natural, underscore this. The curls fall loosely, the dress free and white and unencumbered. We see it everywhere in the paintings of that time. Bettina particularly is characterized by this freedom, this romantic vision of a life lived without constraints, outside the conventional moralities. She was by nature radical, a tomboy as a child, she climbed trees and vaulted fences and played rough and tumble games. She would not be hemmed in for being a woman. Not so Carolina von Günderode, whose nature and gifts were more severe, more classical than romantic. Her poetry, too, shows the effort to place her talent at the service of a classical, Christa Wolf says, male-defined mode and structure. And Bettina fell in love with the older woman. We might say that she developed a crush on her sitting in the poplar tree outside Carolina's window in the stiff, listening to her reading poetry, discussing life with her and art, as young women will. They saw a great deal of each other and corresponded madly when they were apart. A lot of traveling went on in those days, to spas, to university towns, to summer homes and the houses of friends. But the friendship was finally brief, like a hot flame that burns itself out quickly. Carolina broke it off. At the insistence of her lover, the classic scholar Georg Friedrich Kreutzer, as women will when pushed to a choice by the man they love. Uh, he apparently was one of the people who took very much against Bettina and uh, insisted that the, uh, that the uh, friendship um, uh, cease. This hurt Bettina deeply, and she wrote her friend an angry, unforgiving letter. Not long after that, Carolina von Günderode committed suicide at the banks of the Rhine by plunging a dagger into her heart. She had been carrying it with her for years and sinking into the waters of the river, weighed down as was Virginia Woolf by a scarf full of stones. She was only 26. The ostensible cause of the suicide was Kreutz's decision to break off the affair. He was married and didn't choose to divorce his wife. But one senses about her, one finds echoes of it throughout her writings, that that will to death which possesses so many poets, gifted, vulnerable, irresistibly drawn toward the dark abyss of death. Bettina, on the other hand, was clearly a survivor. But as you can imagine, the suicide of her friend, however they had quarreled, was a traumatic blow for Bettina. She could not help but blame herself. They had parted on an angry note. She never forgot or forgave this loss, and it took her 33 years to publish the book at hand. Uh, which Bettina dedicated to the youth of the banned radical student movement 
uh, it came out in, in 1839 at the moment of deepest reaction, as Christa Wolf points out, the midpoint between the revolutions of 1830 and 1848. It caused a sensation and became a great success. It was based on the letters the two women exchanged between 1804 and 1806 and clearly represents an attempt by Bettina to recapture the hope, the youth, the friendship of that golden time. Bettina, who lived to be 74, was one of those women who remained forever young in heart, forever radical. She had more political courage in the difficult years of the 1830s, most famously denounced by Heinrich Heine, than most of her male acquaintances. She was a champion of the Silesian weavers, and I must say I've come to hear her speak very clearly to me over the times that separate us. And I thank Christa Wolf for leading me to that also. Caroline is, of course, the tragic figure. In a sense, you understand this is a love story, doomed from the beginning to lose her struggle in art and life and love. I think that, as I feel for Bettina, Christa Wolf, of a darker, more meditative temperament, feels for Caroline. She wrote a novella about her called No Place on Earth. In German, it's called uh, Kein Ort Nirgends, which pairs her with Heinrich von Kleist, another death-seeking figure of that sun-drenched time. But that is another story, and not for tonight. The fact remains, and it's this that I want to leave with you, is that this novel of friendship is a work that makes little concessions to conventional literary canons. Wolf says male canons which are what supposedly make literature significant. Yet it is a work that accurately reflects the sensibilities and emotional experiences of its protagonists. And in its very refusal to bow to established forms, it rings fresh and true across the years. We need only listen to its melodies. Thank you. Vivian Gornick. Her name Marjorie Latimer whom I had never heard of, and I picked it up in the routine manner of being interested in all lost women writers and began to read, and to my amazement discovered that I was reading a remarkable writer, um, a woman who truly, I think, uh, belongs that midway between Sinclair Lewis and Evan Connell, who was uh, an American original uh, and a Midwestern modernist and who left um, a small body of work that um, is, as I say, uh, remarkable, all the more so for our never having heard of her before. Uh, so I read the collection and the forward and the backward and, uh, and all the, uh, the biography that went with it, and I wrote a review of, of this, this collection, which also included the history of uh, an intensely literary mentorship between the young Marjorie Latimer and the older Zona Gale. 
in the review, I of course speak mainly about the collection. Uh, tonight, I would like to read partly from the review because it's a, there's a, a quick praises in it of, of the history of, of this friendship. Um, and then try to show how in this case, this is a mentorship that becomes the metaphor of a piece of literature that um, really deserves to take its place in American uh, lit. So that will become clear as, as I go on. Let me just read you the couple of columns here uh, that describe who these people were and how this all came about. Marjorie Latimer was born in Portage, Wisconsin in 1899 to a beautiful cultivated mother and a handsome Philistine father. The mother was devoted to things of the spirit, the father to the virtues of American enterprise. Marjorie was her mother's soulmate almost from birth. The father was a traveling salesman. Each time he returned home, he seemed more hopelessly removed from the women living under his roof. In their presence, he felt coarse. In his presence, they felt threatened. Marjorie grew up glorious looking, tall, straight, golden-haired, possessed, it has been said repeatedly, of a radiant presence, meeting life with, quote, the directness and intensity of a Blake vision. She knew when very young that she was a writer, and Zona Gale knew it as well. Zona Gale, a popular writer in the early decades of the century, wrote about the Midwest in a famous series called The Friendship Village Stories. And in 1921, she won the Pulitzer Prize in Drama for Miss Lulu Bett, a kind of homegrown doll's house. Ibsen's doll's house. <laughs> Friendship Village was Portage, where Zona lived with her parents in ardent singleness until she was 52 years old whereupon she married a man in the town who resembled her father. <laughs> Marjorie and Zona met in 1917 when one of Marjorie's stories was published in the local paper. Marjorie was 18 years old and Zona was 41. The two were immediately and irrevocably taken with each other. For Zona, Marjorie was a worthy disciple and companion as she wrote to someone, a wonderful child I have found here, one of the most exquisite centers of intuitive experience. For Marjorie, Zona was the vindication of her own belief that she was indeed special, as her mother always told her she was. Between them, they shaped a private conversation that picked up its skirts daily to cross Main Street, USA. The relationship was in equal part splendid and foolish, bold and manipulating, serving and self-serving. Beyond question, it made Marjorie Latimer a writer. She went to New York in 1921, stayed a year and came home. Left again for the University of Wisconsin, stayed a year and came home. Went to Chicago, again came home. This girl could not leave. <laughs> Meanwhile, she wrote stories and a novel, got published and reviewed, had a long, unhappy love affair with the poet Kenneth Fearing. 
was living in the village at the same time as Edna Millay, by the way, down the street, and determined on a life of art without love, because fearing was impossible. <laughs> <laughs> when Zona got married in 1928, Marjorie went into a severe depression. In their incomparable nervousness, it had served them both to worship the idea of themselves as virgin priestesses at the shrine of art. Now, when Zona got married, as Nancy Lowridge observes in the afterwards a guardian angel, quote, if Zona was not uncommon, not a unique superior being, then what was Marjorie? After languishing at home for a year, Marjorie again ran off to Chicago, where in 1931, she met Jean Toomer, the black writer who had become famous for Cain, a prose poem about black Southern life. Toomer was now the foremost lecturer in America on the teachings of the Russian mystic Gurdjieff. She had found Zona's replacement. They were married in October 1931. On August 16, 1932, Marjorie Latimer died in childbirth. She was 33 years old. She left behind two novels and two collections of short fiction. One of the interesting and amazing things about Latimer was that she isolated her subject early in her life. All this stuff that she wrote, she wrote in her 20s, between 23 and 32. She saw what she had to see quickly, and she worked intently at it for a good 10 years. She wrote in her early 20s, there's only one possession worth having, and that is the capacity to feel that life is a privilege and that each person in it, unique, and will never appear again, quote unquote. This possession endows all human beings with a will for moral beauty that is to be prized and served. Midwestern babbitry thwarts this will, chokes off feeling life, destroys the person within. The instrument of murder is the family. <laughs> this was Latimer's fundamental insight and preoccupation. The insight was nurtured by her mother, the preoccupation hands down by Zona Gale. Now that's the history of these two. What is extremely interesting, and I think perhaps unique, uh, perhaps not, uh, it, it's not worth making that point, uh, is the usage to which this friendship, this mentorship is put in a remarkable novella called Guardian Angel. It is a barely um, a transformed uh, autobiographical novella. I mean, it's all about the friendship. But this is what happens in it. She does one very intelligent thing from the outset. She devises a third character, a narrator whom she calls Aunt Grace. Zona Gale becomes a woman named Fleeta Bain. <laughs> Fleeta Bain draws pots of flowers that people buy all over the United States. <laughs> but in this little town in Wisconsin, in Lodi, Wisconsin, Fleeta Bain is an other. She is a creature unlike all the rest. Then there is Vanessa, the young girl who is Marjorie. 
these two have a hypnotized, mesmerized exchange. Rita lives not with her parents, but with an old crone of an aunt. Vanessa, in turn, has this aunt, Aunt Grace, who is the narrator. This narrator is Jamesian in character. She is close enough to the characters so that she sees them as they see themselves. She is also distant enough so that she sees them as the town sees them. The aunt herself is a failed singer. She had once gone to Chicago to become a great opera singer, but she had failed in her ambition and returned to make a good, homely, decent, virtuous Midwestern marriage, right? So she has all of these virtues. She is both solid and of Babbitt country. At the same time, she is not really a Philistine, and her heart goes out to these two. And so it is through her eyes that you see the relation that forms between the two. And what, what she accomplishes, what Latimer accomplishes with this distancing device is to show you a character like Rita Bain this is really the main street we should have had. This, this no, if she had lived long enough and she had rewritten this thing six more times in her life, I think we would have had an incomparably greater main street uh, than, than we do have, because this is what she does. She makes these characters serve the struggle between property and spirit, and they do not serve it, one representing property and the other spirit, but they serve it by both of them in turn in constant fluid motion, being expressive, being willful, being manipulating, cold, bitchy, um, sur um, uh, exploitative, and then suddenly flashing and turning and becoming expressive and spiritual and intellectual and given to all the great prizing um, virtues of life. And the girl is continuously drawn pushed back and forth between aggression and passivity, between hesitation uh, and advancement, as Fleeta Bain remains, becomes and remains the uncertain quantity, the creature whom she can, who does not serve her wholly and does not betray her wholly. And what you have is 100 pages of slow advancement along these lines. And it could be ridiculous. <laughs> it could be full of gush and intensity. Uh, it could seem ludicrous at times, but it never does. It never does. She has such control over this that she persuades you that what is happening here is of monumental world importance. That not only are these particular lives at stake, but that these two embody the greatest struggle the world has ever known <laughs> between property and spirit. And behind them, the entire town is lined, one by one. Um, Grace's husband and children, Fleeta Bain's uh, aunt, uh, the man she ultimately marries, who is the evil rich man of the town, uh, uh, Vanessa's um, hapless, hopeless parents uh, who are filled with loss of, um, uh, and incapacity. Uh, and you have an entire town that is total Babbitt country at the turn of the century, uh, all against this uh, very, very literary friendship between these two women. So it is, at least in my experience, the first time that I uh, ever saw 
a mentorship of this sort between two women that becomes of metaphoric usage uh, and accomplishes great literature. Thank you. We'll open it for a bit and then we'll close. So what happens is that all of us in the front row are freezing. And I know you're all suffering. So why don't we open it a bit? When we start shivering, we'll close it. Yes. Are there back windows? If people are back in the work area, would they open the windows there, please? You know, back by the desks, if you can. During our break, we'll open the windows wide, although we don't want anybody jumping out. <laughs> this is the last uh, uh, paper of uh, the first section. Uh, I'm E.M. Broner, and I'm going to talk about three women, one of whom was prolific, but whose work you probably never heard of, one of whom wrote, but never published, and the last, uh, and the only thing the last wrote was uh, a college application blank. <laughs> Their literary relationship is with me. And this talk has to do with finding friends, comrades in history. And ultimately, they become closer than friends. They become your characters. I did my research at the Walter Ruther Labor Archives on the Waite State Campus in Detroit. The romance of Detroit is the UAW. Uh, the battles of Detroit are not those of uh, other wars like the Battle of Somme or the Battle of the Bulge, uh, but for Detroiters it's the Ford Hunger Strike of 1932, the Battle of the Overpass at Fords, and the sit-down in Flint in 37. In the archives, I encountered heroic men and read of their deeds. But it was only through women that I discovered other women and the role they played in the organizing of heavy industry. And it wasn't until I could hear the voices of those women that I would know the vocal range of my women characters. Not until I read their stories could I shape my own. In 1937, the event in Michigan was the sit-down by the workers in the Fisher Body plant in the GM factory town of Flint. Older Detroiters recall where they were when the strike was on, the way you think about where were you when Kennedy was assassinated or Roosevelt died. Uh, they will tell you that they took the long streetcar ride out to Flint uh, to help out uh, in support. 
And the whole world sent reporters there for the richest company in the world was being forced to negotiate by the men sitting in the plant and refusing to leave. The country was singing songs uh, like the one by Morris Sugar, when the boss ties a can to a company man, sit down, sit down. When they give him the sack, then take him back, sit down, sit down, sit down, just take a seat, sit down, just rest your feet, sit down, you've got them beat, sit down, sit down. But were there no women? I found photos of women workers in the plants being led out through the back door. The uh, strikers said they didn't want hanky-panking going on in the plants between the men and the women. But an enterprising, much-published journalist, Mary Heaton Vorse, peered into the strike kitchen, into the meeting halls, and discovered the women's support system for the strike and the women's radical action and groups and wrote of the pivotal action that the women played. Ms. Vorse was a writer for every publication of every point of view, from the masses to the New York Times, the Women's Home Companion to the New Republic, the Atlantic, the New Yorker. But it was only she who wrote of the Women's Emergency Brigade. Uh, and she was the only one who took down the words of a Mrs. Lamb. Mrs. Lamb said, in the strike kitchen. I am the mother of nine children and I have three grandchildren. I want to tell you about the Battle of Flint. We call it Bulls Run because we got the bulls, the cops on the run. What they tried to do was to stop us from getting food to our striking boys. They were shooting and throwing gas bombs and some of them um, uh, we threw right back at them. Then they came up at me with the gas. Come right ahead, boys, I said. I've been gassed and I can stand more, but you're not going to stop me from getting food to my kids. Voris wrote several articles on the Women's Emergency Brigade. I'm not sure how many were published. I have only them in the original uh, manuscript. She wrote about their red tams and red armbands, their courage in breaking the windows of the plants when the strikers were being tear gassed. And then she said, when I next saw Mrs. Lamb, she had been put through another battle. She wiped her eyes perpetually and the odor of tear gas hung around her. She could only talk to me a moment because she had to go and see how badly her husband was hurt. Some of you have seen the documentary film Babies and Banners and have heard 40 years after the event Janora Johnson Dollinger declaring the group historic. But then Mary Heaton Vorse in 1937 heard Janora Johnson's voice coming from a sound car trying to get the women of the town to stop being afraid to get involved to place themselves between the strikers and the police. Janora said, we women don't want violence, we don't want trouble, but we are going to protect our husbands. And through courage and planning, uh, they fool the police and they save the strike. And because of the Women's Emergency Brigade, the strike did continue. Well, who is this Mrs. Vorse who knows to look into the kitchens and on the battlefield to find women? I find early and later photos of her and I memorize her features and I tenderly watch her change from the young woman wearing a velvety soft dress, leaning her head against the tall embossed chair in her library, to the woman 30 years later in summer print dress and gauzy collar and straw hat. There is a white bandage over the left eye of this middle-aged woman where she was grazed by a strike breaker's bullet. The first photo is 1907 in her luxurious home. The next is 1937 in Ohio, where Vorse is addressing the striking workers at Little Steel Strike. She was a young woman of privilege, but early, <coughs> she felt an alliance to women. 
She identified with women, and in 1909, she wrote a short story of such delicacy and such courage that one is startled at the early date of The Quiet Woman. It is a tale of bonding between women, of an older woman whispering warning to her younger neighbor. The mother warns the young woman against her own son who would be betrothed to this neighbor. You're so near... You're so near me, Mrs. Wenthill went on, so low that it was as if she were afraid to hear her own words, that I can't let you suffer what you would have to. You don't think I'd be happy with Henry, Catherine suggested. No, men like Henry don't know how they hurt women like us, Henry's mother said gently. It was an apology, not an accusation. They crush the weaker people around them out of existence, they don't mean to. They are the men with no women in them. They are the ones who first cheated our, who first uh, created our meannesses and weaknesses and then laughed and scolded and sneered at us for being as they made us. I Xeroxed this story from the archives and sent it to Ms. Magazine that republished it. But only a few of her 400 articles and 16 books have our in uh, recent publication. There is a book out uh, a couple years ago uh, of collection of her essays, but history has has dealt carelessly with her. Um, it was her her awareness. It was her knowledge of where to go that gave me courage. Uh, she would go wherever women were meeting. She went in 1913 to the 7th uh, uh, International Suffragist Meeting, and her article sounds like a history of our foremothers, where Jane Addams is sitting with her ample lap, and Anna Shaw, the first Methodist woman minister and MD, and uh, uh, Professor Whittier, an astronomer in a sort of tuxedo, and uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. All of these people affected her. Other other women came running into her house too, and uh, Frances Perkins, who would later become uh, Secretary of Labor under uh, uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, came running as a young woman, screaming into um, uh, Mary Heaton Vorse's house. Uh, she had just witnessed uh, the Triangle uh, uh, Waist Shirt fire and women uh, falling to their fiery depths, and she came in telling. Uh, Mary Heaton Vorse, what she had seen among uh, factory workers. And um, she taught me to go into kitchens and how to go on the road and interview Polish cigar workers, women who sat at R.G. Dunn in Detroit, but whose files were expunged when the Walter Ruther Labor Archives was established. Uh, you know, the women's organizing wasn't considered important, and everything was thrown away, including almost everything on the Women's Emergency Brigade. And I had to learn to look beyond the established telling for a whispering. Well, when one is in the files, you can go forward or backward with equal ease. And since I was looking for the organizing of heavy industry, I looked for strikes before 1937 in the auto industry. And there were photos taken at the Studebaker carriage plant in Detroit in 1917 where 500 workers were out on strike. They're being addressed by a woman named Matilda Robbins, née Rabinowitz, who is so short that standing on a soapbox, she's still uh, not even shoulder high to the strikers. And she 
uh, is the daughter of immigrant Russians, and her life is not so different in her telling than that of thousands of other Russian Jewish women, except that she wrote a literate autobiography, that she kept track, that she named the women who influenced her and the strikes that taught her. She named women like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn and Mary Fahey, and the strikes largely of women workers in the New Jersey silk plants in Passaic and the textile plants in Lawrence. And she joined the tra Women's Trade Union League and learned tactics. And she joined the IWW and learned passion and came to Detroit to organize. And she wrote this. The IWW was weak. It had a group of excellent speakers who carried on much agitation. But there were arrests, my own at Ford's, and harassment by the police. Speakers would be arrested and kept in jail overnight and generally released on the following day. I was lodged in jail for one night. The charge, obstructing traffic, said the policeman, who towered over me to the police judge. My case was dismissed. The strike dissipated itself. Many years were to elapse before the auto workers were moved as a mass toward industrial unionism. So that was 1917. These women were ladies as well as women. For the movements of their, they were always the megaphone of the movement of their time, yet they wore gloves, they wore hats in, in every action. Uh, from uh, Matilda Robbins' uh, uh, large felt hat as she stands on the uh, courthouse steps where she's just been released from jail to uh, the straw bonnets of Mary Heaton Force. Uh, one other thing about uh, Matilda Robbins, uh, she wrote in her autobiography about being a single mother, about uh, the exhausting schedule of uh, finding someone to stay with the baby, of uh, running uh, to work, of uh, rushing back. And she kept careful data of this and sent uh, an this article to all the magazines and received the most uh, insulting rejections, and an especially priggish one from Frida Kirschley of the nation. Uh, there were still topics uh, women should not tell their tale. And the last is a voice with no face. Among the applicants to Brookwood Labor College, I found women. They wanted to be part of the mass movement. And uh, this is the letter that was written in 1932. And it goes this way. And I, I, I have it in this scrawly handwriting. I was born on the last day of December 1914 when I became an inmate of this capitalist prison. <laughs> My first meeting as a child was in 1917, when she was three, where I was taken to Public Square in Cleveland. My father was a socialist. It was a pacifist meeting against entry into the First World War. Mowing their way through the mob, swinging their clubs through the mounted police, right, on the uh, and right and left, and the crowd was frantic. The speaker kept his place on the stand until he was torn off by two policemen. My father tried to get us out of the milling and by now hysterical crowd. Two policemen charged into our midst, and before we realized what had happened, we saw my brother lying on the ground. His, the horses had stepped on his leg. I have never forgotten that first demonstration of my life. The mayor who led the fight against the Reds has been re-elected in Cleveland. So there were interconnections between these women and to these women to me. And I hope with their tales ringing in my ears to be able to develop a prose that is platformed in plain sight, that exhorts, and that's tender. And I hope to do this in my tamer fashion. Thank you. Uh, we'll take about a 10 minute, uh, we'll take a, a
We'll take a five-minute break now. We urge people not to leave their seats because they're not going to get anywhere. Please don't leave your seats. Please don't leave the room. You're not going to get back. Five minutes. The second half of this uh, wonderful panel <laughs> is uh, going to be contemporary literary relationships. Um, Grace Paley and Jane Cooper will have the first dialogue. Uh, Jane Cooper's most recent book is Scaffolding New and Selected Poems, which received the first Morris English Poetry Award. She recently retired from Sarah Lawrence College where she and Paley taught together for over 20 years. Grace Paley, uh, one of the founders of the Women's Committee and on the board at Penn here, has written three short story collections, The Little Disturbances of Men, Enormous Changes at the Last Minute, and her most recent, Later the Same Day. She has been selected as the New York State author. <laughs> After that, Judith Molina and Karen Malpied uh, will speak. Why is everyone there? Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ju Judith Molina is famous for the founding with Julian Beck of the Living Theater and for their 20 years of touring on the road with that theater. Uh, recently at Cooper Union, there was a retrospective of the Living Theater, several hours of scenes in a historic uh, moment. She has written The Enormous Despair, uh, The Diaries of Judith Molina, and The Poems of a Wandering Jewess. Karen Malpied, playwright, will have a play, Us, next season at the Theater of the New City to be directed by Judith Molina. She's the author of Women in Theater, Compassion and Hope, and has just published A Monster Has Stolen the Sun and other plays. Afterwards, Alice Childress will speak about her grandmother, Eliza White. Uh, Miss Childress's plays include, uh, and, and books include the recently performed Moms, A uh, Mom's Mabley, uh, Trouble in Mind, Florence, and the book and film, A Hero Ain't Nothing But a Sandwich, was banned and then put back on the shelf and became a movie. And she's also written the young adult book, uh, Rainbow Jordan. Uh, uh, Sarah E. Wright, novelist, poet, whose novel, the, uh, This Child's Gonna Live, is in its 10th printing and is recently reissued by the Feminist Press. She has won the Novelist Poet Award from the National Conference of Afro-American Writers at Howard University. And <coughs> Ms. Wright is a certified poetry therapist. And last, Louisa Venezuela will speak on her mother, 
uh, Luisa Mercedes Levinson. She's written nine novels, novellas, stories in Spanish, uh, published in Argentina, and she's published five books, a novel and novella and short stories in English. Among them, strange things happen here about the period of the disappeared in Argentina. She has a forthcoming book, Open Door. The dialogues will be for about 12 minutes uh, of, of two speakers, and single speakers will speak for less. Uh, and Mary Gordon will make the concluding remarks. Thank you. We get now to the friendships that are going on and on and are continuing to influence each other. My life was really revolutionized in the middle 60s. Can't hear me? You gotta go right into it. Uh, what? Have to talk like this. <laughs> Is that any better? Okay. Uh, my life was really revolutionized in the middle 60s when I went to the first poets and writers, or teachers and writers meeting. Uh, and the subject was simply how writers could go into schools at any level and help kids learn to read, learn to express themselves, learn to speak, learn to write. And the, the hero of those first meetings for me was Grace Paley, who spoke about simply starting in her own neighborhood at uh, her own public school on 11th Street. And um, shortly thereafter, Grace came to teach at Sarah Lawrence, where I was teaching. And in the late 60s and I guess into the early 70s, we co-taught in a senior seminar where uh, our senior writers, when they had something especially uh, good and finished, presented it uh, to about five faculty members and about 10 students. And I was really so struck I'd been teaching for a long time. I had taught mainly short story writing at that time. I was just beginning to teach poetry writing, which subsequently I did for 20 years. And I was so struck by the humanness of Grace's responses to these stories and poems that the seniors had done, and also uh, by the openness of her attitude toward form and listening to her speak to students whom I also had taught made me realize that what I had been doing was teaching a course in the well-made story. And I began to see what happens if you simply follow truthfulness and invention. And Grace had the most profound effect not only on my way of working with students from then on in terms of what I began to ask in the way of truthfulness and form, but also in terms of uh, what, what then became important to me in, in what I wanted to do. Uh, we shortly thereafter or simultaneously began to share with one another our own work, and I think one of the important things in our dialogue is that it's been a dialogue between someone who's uh, a short story writer who also has written wonderful poems, 
and someone who's a poet who has occasionally tried to write prose. Uh, and I think that both of us feel that we don't want to make a hard and fast line between the media, that we really feel that poems uh, move into uh, stories and stories move back into poems. Yeah, I, I take by the fact that you're looking at me that I now have to say something, right? You're allowed to interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it, it, it's sort of, it's odd that when someone is telling you about the period where uh, you had a great influence on them and you thought all the time that they were having a great influence on you. <laughs> and, um, and I suppose that's, that's the way it, uh, it, it really ought to be and should be. But when I began to teach, I really, um, at, 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 the, at this time, well, this should be a lesson to everybody. <laughs> at this time, when I, when I first began to teach, uh, and I came to school, and there was Jane, and she really was a, this uh, really first-class poet and top-notch teacher. And, um, and uh, I came in, and I really felt like a dope. Uh, so while I was making all these remarks that you uh, say I made, <laughs> I, uh, I was feeling, um, well, first of all, kind of uh, ignorant to be teaching anybody anything and, um, uh, and trying to figure out how to teach and, uh, and trying to figure out if I should and um, trying to figure out uh, what effect it would have on my writing, if any, and uh, and uh, and I met Jane, on whom I was uh, having a totally different effect, <laughs> <laughs> somewhat unrealistic, <laughs> and and uh, who um, who was able to really show me how to work. Uh, 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 I thought she was showing me how to work with students, you know. Well, so I mean, maybe it's like that in all our lives, and uh, and I hope it is. Uh, something like that, but but um, one of the one of the things I think that uh, we both felt very strongly, and we're talking now not only of the influences we had on each other, but in the way in influencing each other, some of our ideas about how to work with other people and how others, how students, how students and people uh, should be working with each other. Uh, became very important to both of us. Uh, so that uh, I, one of the things I, I, um, I feel um, um, sad about, or one of the things I feel first glad about, then sad in a little while, first glad uh, that, that we were able to work together as, as a poet and as a story writer, and that, and that um, we were able in that way because of our relationship um, <laughs> because of our relationship uh, 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 deal with with work exactly in that way so that so that uh, for me to have a uh, uh, to have a a, uh, a fiction class without poets in it was really is really making me feel rotten and uh, and and uh, it just never seemed to work quite quite that way, and um, and one of the great things for me, uh, for both of us, I think, is that we were able in that period 
to, uh, to send students to each other uh, so, that, uh, uh, so that I would, would, would tend to send story writers for a little education, for God's sakes, to Jane, you know? And, uh, and she would uh, send people uh, for my sanity to me. <laughs> and uh, uh, so the, these are some of the ways in which we work together. Uh, other ways were really, as far as our own work was concerned, I, I know that I, I, uh, I, I, uh, in, uh, I think Esther began to work with us. And she said, what's so good about, about your place over there? And I said, well, you know, I can always run into Jane's office and I show her what I'm, something I'm writing and I can talk to her about it. And it seemed to me that that was really uh, just natural. Turned out it was not so natural after <laughs> all. But it seemed like the only way that people could both live and work in this world. And uh, w one more point I just want to make uh, is that, that the workshops that um, that we we had at school, uh, for me, well, uh, uh, for, for really for both of us, I think I think it's true, although you didn't say it, but you felt it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can say you didn't, <laughs> <laughs> but really, what I, I mean, I hear what it is first. I know. <laughs> I'm scared to tell her. <laughs> no, w w really was this that, um, I mean, my feeling to, to this day really about workshops that I teach is that if the people are not interested in each other's work, I don't want them in the class. I don't want a class, uh, I don't want a class that isn't able to, uh, uh, in which people aren't interested in one another. And that's a political feeling and it comes from basically from my, my politics. And I, I don't know if Jane feels like that, but... Uh, uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but I, um, one, one of the things that, that has happened because of this feeling is that many of these workshops that started at school have continued and have gone on, and people are still working together in some of those workshops. Uh, Without us. And yeah, but really without us. I mean, never even hear of them anymore. Yeah. I think something important to say um, is to think about how the emphasis on hearing. I think both Grace and I really, when we share work with one another, she has read me stories and poems, and I have read her poems, and both of us have really uh, wanted to hear the other one's work aloud first before we saw it with the eye. And I think that's been important in then getting other people to work with one another in some strange way. I think you can't, you can't share work and exchange work without tremendous love and admiration for the, what the other person is doing and for what it might become and you have to have a lot of trust for the other person as a human being. But I also think that I trust Grace's ear as, as deeply as any ear I know, that if she listens to a poem and she says, just there it goes off, uh, mm -hmm. without even looking at it, 
But that's, that's very uh, crucial to me. I'll just say one other thing, which is about that sense of form. It was really Grace who put my second book, Maps and Windows, together. Uh, I took her three separate sections that I hadn't really thought of as one book. And she listened to the work. I went over to Vermont, then she read it. And she came out the second day and said, well, I managed to read it all the way through. And then she said, well, you really have one book, which I didn't know. And that, uh, I think, tells you a lot about at least the influence she's been on me. Well, you know, you can say these things back and forth, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> forever. And uh, I will say that I, that I, that I, that I never really, that I, I do give, um, I do give Jane, I mean, I, 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 if I finish a story, I tend to bring it over to her house and read it to her, you know, and uh, hope that it turns out okay. Of course, I don't bring it to her until I'm pretty sure it's okay, you know. <laughs> I'm not a fool. That's the sneaky, <laughs> that's the sneaky part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I think we don't have a lot of time, and there are a lot of other people to talk. So I, I just, uh, uh, I think you have to say, I mean, I would like to say for my life and work that I've been helped by a lot of people, and, and in the beginning of my uh, writing life, by a number of men as well, uh, and without whom I wouldn't have been published. But that's the trouble with getting published uh, <laughs> for a lot of women. But was okay for me. So, but, but, but this business really, of um, of having uh, um, uh, a couple of people uh, to w to to read to, to hear you, who people you know will listen to you seriously, and pay attention to what you've done, and uh, be truthful, is uh, is. Is is um, seems at this point in our in our history um, to be particularly female. Uh, I know of a, a great number of workshops of people working together. I mean, without without teachers, without you know chair chairlet women or whatever, uh, uh, and and most of them are female. There are a couple that aren't because the world is changing. Thank God, you know. But uh, but it, it's, it seems that uh, that what Mary talked about in the beginning, which is uh, a way. With all this disorder. <laughs> and, and in the midst of all this, all the, these, these books are written. Um, she has four very uh, important novels. The last being one that's titled, and she hasn't been published in English as, as novels. She has some short stories uh, here and there in anthologies and, and uh, literary magazines. Uh, the last one is called uh, The Last Silofonte, and this is a very mythical animal. And this is a woman in her 80s, in her very early 80s, but her, uh, 80 years old, and this shouldn't come out of this room. Um, <laughs> writing. Writing a very sensual, again, a very uh, intensely uh, sexual and full of love short story. And at that point, when she was writing this, I was back in Buenos Aires, 
I also feel that one of the reasons I'm so far is because there is this uh, very strong figure there. I, c I don't know if I can face this marvelous, uh, powerful, full of humor and, and, and devouring strong figure. But at that point, I was in Buenos Aires like three years ago, and I was writing a book, and she was writing hers, and suddenly we were both writing about Eva Peron. It's true that this was sort of unavoidable. This was uh, still the under the military regime, and, and, and it, it was such a strong character, so we couldn't avoid it. But it was very strange that we had never done it before, and suddenly the two of us. So we would reach, read to each other uh, with writing. And I always praise myself to be very different, uh, to have a very different, not only a style, but a very different approach to literature. And in these two very different styles, sometimes uh, very similar things were said. And, and that was very, very, very moving for me. Um, and I, I, I could, at that point, accept some form of identification and, and some form of closeness. The we've always been very close, so and that's a problem for me, to the point that I, everything she says, uh, sometimes when things can be very uh, cheering, but many things she says are very painful to me and when, when she's being critical and she is quite critical of me many times. To the point that um, I went to analysis for many years. This is very, uh, this is a very Argentine thing. And my analyst, my woman analyst would say, listen, you have to break this couple with your mother. It's, it's unbearable. Um, you're always speaking about you, 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 you're entrapped in this fascination. And I went back and feeling very bad and tried to write these things, which I knew never would be published because they were quite cruel about the house and all that. And suddenly one day the, the situation was unbearable with my mother, unbearable. I said, listen, you have to come to analysis with me and I'll take you to see this analyst and we have to both <laughs> to go together. And that was one of the most crushing and fantastic experiences in my life. Because she started, she took the, the stage and she started telling her story without realizing this is like a pre-Freudian woman, not in her writing, she's a very perceptive and has a very insightful writer, but there she was feeling very, pre, being very pre-Freudian and saying she was a virgin and analysis and all that and starting speaking about her mother. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly I understood. This was marvelous. I understood that this was nothing that was against me in many ways, but this was happening from generations on end. She is, uh, I, I was not an only daughter. I had a, a sister who was 10 years older and who died when I was 10. So I was practically an only, only daughter and I was the accomplice of my mother, but she had been an only daughter and my grandmother had been an only daughter. And she told in her very marvelous uh, style of, of speaking because she can, she's not only a great writer, but she's also a great possessor. And in her marvelous style, she started saying of her, of how ashamed she was of her mother because she would go to these dances when she was like 14 or 15 and all the mothers were sitting around the, 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 the dance floor and chairs and they all looked like black, e black eggs. <laughs> and there was this gorgeous mother of hers with big decolletes <laughs> <laughs> and being very modern and she couldn't stand it. She feel, felt very ashamed of her. 
And I, I think one of my reactions also, even if I was this tomboy, was this um, being ashamed of this mother that was so beautiful and, and so uh, swimming against the current and, and, and so full, so sure of herself. So when I left, I went back, my, I, I left my mother outside, I went running back to my analyst and I said, well, uh, you know, I'm sorry. And she said, well, you know, uh, I'm sorry to have been always under the spell of this woman. Now I understand more. And she said, no, 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 you don't understand anything. She is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think this is this fascination and this spirit <laughs> to which, with all these contradictions, as you can imagine, I'm still hooked that I am I, I am still hooked with her in that sense and, and, and also feeling very fighting her and feeling very uh, left aside and, uh, and the little Cinderella of the family because I also have a, a quite a gorgeous daughter. And um, I, was, I was there who feels a Cinderella of a family herself. <laughs> um, I, I was there now uh, for, for the pre Christmas holidays and my mother was very sick. Fortunately, I can say this now because now she's okay. Thanks to her spirit, she's full of things, but she, she, she keeps going. And um, my mother was very sick, and she couldn't laugh. She had a broken rib, and she couldn't laugh. And I would, was talking to her seriously, and she laughed. She said, listen, stop, ma stop making me laugh. And I said, listen, I'm very serious. I'm, I'm telling you serious things. And she said, no, but the wor way you word things is so funny. <laughs> I love the way you word things. And it's true, because as we have this sort of common secret language, in Spanish, it's, it's very funny. And I can't avoid it when I'm with her. So I've become very witty and, and, and I was saying, well, I'm, I'm serious and I can't do anything. And at a certain point, and I will tell this little anecdote to, to close my, my talk, she was really dying. I, I, w I was in despair, I thought she was dying. She was mumbling, she had like a mini stroke or something and she had completely, she had anomia. And these names, this was in a very brief period. I, I called her on the phone and, and I realized she's not well, so I rushed to her house and I told my daughter who was with me, listen, come as quickly as you can. We have to see, her husband was leaving at that moment to work. So there I was with this sort of dying mother, pale, cadaveric, lying in bed and not remembering the name. So the phone, phone would ring and she would say, who is so-and-so and who is, who called? And she wouldn't remember who was so-and-so. And just this very painful thing. And she was sort of making wills and leaving things to all of us. So I rushed down to call, to call her, her husband, and when I come up, she was telling my daughter, and tell your mother that she must take my books. She had just had, and probably this had made her sort of sick in a sense, the first volume of her complete works appearing. So this was a great, th this, was, this, this had been a fantastic party where she was supposed to go and sit down and enjoy the party and everybody would talk, and she couldn't. She got up and spoke and took the mic and did lots of things. So <laughs> Three days later, there she was dying. <laughs> so she was telling my daughter, uh, and tell your mother to, my books have to be sent to New York and to Pa, Pa, and she couldn't get the word. So my daughter quickly says, to Paraguay. And my <laughs> mother starts laughing, quah, quah, quah. She says, quah, 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 not to Paraguay, to Paris. <laughs> and that was the end of her ministry. <laughs> she came out of this whole thing.
I'm not going to say anything. Esther said, I have to give you a blessing, so I give you a blessing, and I send you off, and I thank you, all of you, very much, and hope to see you again at our next event. taken with each other and have remained so. Sorry. Um, later, our, our friendship as well as our uh, crossing paths of our work uh, took many forms. Uh, I wrote about her book. I wrote about her work. Uh, she wrote about my work. She's included my diaries in her book. And in a way, there has been this, uh, this melding of two paths which have been in some ways very different and which have been, I think, probably a, a constant kind of, 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 of inter, mm -hmm. intercourse, interplay, inter-inspiration that's gone on for these, uh, these many years. I went on a 20-year tour and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't separate us at all. Uh, uh, the, uh, it, it, it separated us by many miles and many, excuse me. Please, <laughs> we do go ahead, please go ahead. Uh, and many months, because we didn't write to each other every day. Uh, in fact, I wrote sometimes more often than Judith, but, but for many months there was silence. <laughs> and she, com and she felt guilty about it, and I made it. But, um, but I think there was a real uh, uh, understanding to stay separate uh, for, you know, not only in space, but, but to, to do very separate work for many, many of those years and, and uh, to develop uh, separately. And I think this has been an important kind of balance for us. Uh, uh, during the time I, I, I knew her, Karen founded the New Cycle Theater uh, wrote many plays, uh, each of which, when I saw them, was a, a, a new source of energy and inspiration for us. Uh, the play after play, I, I, I followed the course of her work and she the course of my work in a constant dialogue, in a constant intimate dialogue. I wish we could give mm. these people some yes. sense of how we speak together and of how we do that. It's so hard in, in, in a setting in, in which we're being <laughs> observed uh, <laughs> and in which we feel ourselves observed uh, uh, when, our, when our tendency is to speak in such an intimate whisper uh, to each other, knowing that we really already understand. Uh, many times her plays went in a, into a very different area of theater than the plays of the living theater. Uh, many of the forms that she explored uh, were new and different for us. Uh, we, had, uh, we have had ongoing dialogues about profound differences of opinion. And somehow, it's very strange that these have not separated us, but been a source of, of uh, dialectic that's kept an elasticity of each of us really being uh, a separate and different kind of artist who can, who can then fuse uh, uh, with the variation and the harmony 
of something very different. It's, it's because we really believe that the other one is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's this clear. This makes it very when we good. disagree. <laughs> this is a constant kind Judith of inspiration. But we're not wrong. As, as Karen pointed out, we don't feel each other wrong on the <laughs> fundamental <laughs> principles. On the fundamental principles of what our art is and what art is and what the life of a woman in, in the arts has to be and how each of us has had her struggle and shared in the other's struggle in being a woman in the arts. Uh, what has surely kept us close is that the fundamental principles of non-harmfulness, of ahimsa, of the pacifist, anarchist, activist commitment has certainly drawn us very close. Uh, where do you find a friend who believes as you believe? Uh, how many anarchist, pacifist, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, feminist, uh, uh, vegetarian artists do you meet? Uh, not so many. And when you find one, it's a real sister to your soul, and you can bind uh, a very close link. And we have followed each other through our life events, uh, through uh, uh, childbirths and widowhoods and love affairs, holding each other's hand, being the, the ear we can pour ourselves out to. Uh, I have wept many times on her shoulder and uh, she on mine. We've spilled many tears together and always somehow the suffering, uh, the adventures, the glories, the struggles have ended up somehow inside the artwork work. And finally, after 15 years of deep relationship, I'm finally going to work on a play of Karen's. Uh, uh, I'm going to direct <laughs> her play, and this is for us a whole new step, <laughs> and we're trembling with excitement as to what so this excited. will mean, <laughs> of what this will mean. Uh, and uh, we're, we're, we're planning this fall to open a play about, uh, about love, about sexuality, uh, about this human woman struggle uh, called Us that Karen has written. And just before we talk together, if I could read just a short few words, uh, a little speech, not a little speech, a great speech, <laughs> uh, a great speech from the play Us. The play Us is the story of, uh, perhaps you should tell it, the story of... Uh, it, it's, the story of it's the story of two lovers and their parents, and two actors play the six characters, so the man plays his father and the girl's father, the woman's father, the et cetera. And it's uh, 11 slices of the erotic life of these six people. And <laughs> there's a scene in which the two of them speak simultaneous speeches interwoven a little like an aria. And I'm going to read to you the woman's speech to show you a little of the recurrence of warmth in the theater, which is, as far as I see it, and I think Karen too, the most important new step and next step 
our theater now is so beautiful and so cold and everything's so hard edge and everything's such a, such a clean, slick formula that to feel again dialogue that's throbbing with, with, with human feeling. Um, I don't know if I can do it justice in this reading, but listen to these words. Hannah, the protagonist, says, yes, Michael. Yes, Michelle, take me. Take me. Take me however you wish. I leave my flesh in your arms. I'm lost in a body pile, stinking with shit that slips after the breathing has stopped. Stinking Jew in a world of Jews, everyone marked. Poisons seeping into each womb. Flesh-burning flame just out of sight. Body piles, pits. The whole earth a pit for the dead who lie shitting their prayer. Here, oh here, I crawl, crawling up. Then I know, then I see. It is a soul pile in which I swim. In the midst of a flesh rotten and wet, molding like bread, bright souls are piled in a heap. A bird rises singing, trembling and singing there on the branch. Soul of a people risen from ash, Jew in a world of Jews marked, faithful, faith-filled, holding, daring to hold to the one, one, true one, lost and sold, soul bartered and crushed, lost soul winging, winging home, the sudden vibrating tone growing everywhere, spreading, invisible, unaccountable light, light in the midst of the dark, light seeping in, spreading through everything, light giving light, drenching us in white light. Yes, yes, I am crying. I don't know why I cry. Stop, Michelle, stop. You're hurting me now. Hold me, hold me, hold me gentle and close. Childress, uh, on your right, will be speaking about her grandmother, Eliza White. Sarah E. Wright, uh, on your uh, left, will be speaking uh, about Alice Childress. So they will each speak separately. Um, I'd like to speak a little bit about my grandmother, Eliza White, Eliza Campbell White, and uh, about her influence 
uh, her training of me as a writer and uh, how much she taught me about writing without being a writer herself and without me knowing that I was being taught at the time. Uh, Eliza Campbell White's mother was a slave in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, at the time of emancipation, she was about 12 years old. And uh, as in the case of many slaves, she was not told emancipation had taken place. And she was alone without parents. She was, regardless of how much we see those big pictures like Gone with Wind, uh, many slaves, most of them, were in a household as servants, one or two, or one as a nursemaid or whatever, or gardening man. And no one told them. And then a law was passed that uh, by midnight, a year later, anyone caught with slaves on the premises would be fined or uh, have a jail sentence. And so her people drove her out to the middle of South Charleston, South Carolina, and in a horse and buggy and left her there. And they drove off. And that had happened to many. So she stood there crying at age 12 or 11. And um, a German woman came up, a poor woman, uh, and asked her why she was crying. And she told her, my folks left me. And she explained uh, to her about emancipation and said, where are you going? She said, I don't know. So she said, would you like to come home with me? And uh, I have five rooms and a little house if you wish to stay and we'll help each other and do the best we can. And she said, all right. And she went. And uh, the woman's name was uh, Annie Campbell. And her son became my grandmother's father. And uh, when Mrs. Campbell died, uh, she, oh, she also named my grandmother Eliza, after Eliza crossing the ice in uh, Uncle Tom's cabin. After she died, she left, a p uh, before she died, she left a paper saying that uh, her cottage would be given to them to uh, her grand, so that her granddaughter would always have a place to live. There was a law on the books in uh, South Carolina that no white could leave property to a black person if they had any living white relative at all. And of course, some rare cousins of the third or fourth cousins came and took the house, and they were uh, out in the street. Um, uh, my uh, great-grandmother, who I never met, and uh, my grandmother. And uh, those were her beginnings. There's much to tell about her. She went to the fifth grade in school. And I don't like to say she had mother wit, as people say about many women who haven't had a great deal of formal education. She was a great thinker and a brilliant woman. And. Uh, she raised me 
a long story why it happened that way, but she shaped the first 18 years of uh, my life. And uh, how she, how I began to get a feeling to be a writer, she would sit by the window and said, say, let's think up stories. And she was a great storyteller. And the man crossing the street, she'd say, what's his name? And I'd give him a name. And then she'd say, Where he's, where's he going? I guess he's going home. What time is it now? He must be have been late getting home from work. What kind of work does he do? I said, he does such and such a job. And she says, I don't think so. He's not dressed that way. And we just went on like this story after story after story. And also, we lived in Harlem, 118th Street, between Lenox and Fifth Avenue. And I stood in this, uh, the window one night and quietly saw men look like two men hiding one from the other. And what happened was uh, one was stalking the other and shot him to death as I watched him empty a gun and, and uh, fall. And I called her. I said, something terrible is happening. And the man who had uh, done it, he ran away. And the police and were there. It was a terrible scene. And she said, oh, you must write that down. Uh, that's something very important. And she had a great big pocketbook uh, that she kept papers in and all. And she put on a phonograph, and I was trying to write it down, and I did. She said, doesn't have to be much. Just write it. And I did that and uh, put that aside. If I said anything, we'd talk a lot to each other. She was my friend. She didn't feel that much like a grandmother. I called her mama since she raised me. And when we spoke about something, she said, that's very important. That's a good thought. Write that down. And uh, find a piece of paper right now. And if it was a brown paper bag or whatever, and then she would put fold that up and put it with the other papers. We went every Wednesday night to Salem Church in Harlem to what they call Wednesday night testimonial, where mostly women gathered and told their hardships and the heartaches they were going through and asked for the help and prayers of others. And I heard there such stories, so many stories, of uh, I have a son in prison or my husband left me or my brother is sick or my husband is unemployed and the others are rallying somehow that that person left feeling another way. A man followed us from church one night, very desperate looking man, and my grandma said, he's following us, he's following us, and uh, uh, we crossed the street, we were going from 129th to 118th, and he was following us, and wherever we went, he went, and uh, we were frightened. It was about 10, 30, 11 at night. And the streets were dark and deserted. And finally, when we got to our block, he moved over behind us, and she said, yes, he is. And when we got halfway down the block, she turned and took my hand and started walking back toward this man. And she walked up to him, and she said, you know, I'm terribly frightened. I'm from Charleston, South Carolina. New York City is, is a hard place for me. She said, uh, may I hold your arm? And if you will take me to my door, I would appreciate it very much. He looked at us astounded. He said, 
what? And she said, I'm afraid. Will, can't I hold your arm? He said, mm-hmm, so? <laughs> she did. And we went to the, we went to the, uh, our door, and then she said, now will you come in the hall with me and stand, and I'll tell you when I'm safely on my floor. <laughs> and uh, he said, mm-hmm, all right. <laughs> and he stood there, and she said, we're safe now, we're home. And um, he left, and she s I said, oh, mama, how did you do that? And she said, I made him the gentleman he's supposed to be. <laughs> and uh, I wouldn't suggest that this be done, you know. Uh, uh, <laughs> but mama said, read to me when I had trouble reading in school. I said, I don't feel like it. She said, my eyes hurt. I wish you'd read to me. I can't do it anymore very well. Of course she couldn't. I didn't realize she was making me read. And I'm reading Kings and all those things from the Bible, you know. She said Nebuchadnezzar, uh, words like this, you know. <laughs> and uh, we read to each other. We talked to each other, stories of her friends. And they're all in a short walk and in uh, other, the, uh, like one of the family. And this envelope grew bigger and bigger, this pocketbook of, of writing. And then there was a fire and we were burned out. This was after she died. The envelope was consumed. And I never forgot any of it. <laughs> Thank you. And my, my friend Sarah Wright, just as my mother made, uh, my grandmother used to take me into to, uh, Madison Avenue places and embarrass me, tell men I have no money, but I want my granddaughter to know about these paintings. <laughs> and they would, they would, you know, she'd select a time when there weren't people, and they'd show it to her. And we visited the Jewish section, the Italian section. She asked them about the food. She asked about everything. And she was educating me in such a loving, wonderful way. And Sarah Wright educated me further recently with her book, uh, This Child's Gonna Live, where I met the people of the eastern shore of Maryland. And more important after that, met Sarah. <laughs> if you could just, sir, you sat in the seat which I occupied before uh, the intermission. That's quite all right. But my briefcase is there, and I want it's to on the floor. Yes, I want you it there. want it? Yes, I have some Sorry. of your books in there, I'll and I wanted to share. Um, thank you so much, sir. Uh, so I'm. No. <laughs> I'm getting out some books. Which, uh,
these are some of the books which have just moved me immensely. And these are written by Alice Childress. Let's see here. This is A Hero Ate Nothing But a Sandwich. I think some of you might have seen the film. It was a popular major film, and it was about the city for a while. Alice, when was that? Uh, three or four years ago? Oh, maybe six. It was six uh, years, with, you know, uh, a Cicely short time. Tyson and and uh, Paul Winfield played in it. I yes, mm -hmm. and Alice Childress wrote the screenplay herself, and she wrote the book. So that's quite an achievement. We don't see many screenplays. You know, the Hollywood uh, fashion is to get someone else to write the screenplay from a novel. And Alice Childress wrote the novel and the screenplay, and it was just superb. So this is a heroic, nothing but a sandwich, and one of my inspiration. The film was as well. Uh, this is Rainbow Jordan. I read this and I cried. It is a superb piece of work. The orchestration, the, um, oh dear, how should I express this? But, but the time together of the style and the content are just superb. It's wonderful. <laughs> so I called Alice Childress, who hadn't heard from me in a year or something, I don't know, and I left a message for her on her answering equipment, and she called me back, and she was both very moved by it. This is Rainbow Jordan, and this is a short walk, which I cried, oh my goodness, I cried. <laughs> you know, you know I, I was so touched by this book. I'm so enthusiastic about Alice Childress's works, not just because they are sentimental or they take me back into my childhood and days of knowing people just like, just like these people, but because they are superbly written. And I respect her as a craftsperson. She's marvelously knowledgeable, and she shows it in these books. Now this one I'm going to read to you from. It's called Like One, in the fa like one of the Family. I encountered this book, oh my goodness, it's over 30, 30 years or something like that. Oh Lord, at some time ago when I encountered this book. My first book. <laughs> it's your first book. <laughs> and it made such a hit with me. And then Alice told me that it was going to be republished by Beacon Press last year. I was so moved. I still have the original, the paper, uh, the hardcover, you know, from that many years ago. <laughs> and I l hold on to the book and read it often, you know, to myself. It is little vignettes about a day worker's experiences on the job and off, but it's marvelously, marvelously exciting. So I'll read three little, little um, experiences that this woman had for you. What I want to say about Alice Childress, I don't know how much the, uh, oh dear, uh, oh my goodness, Brona, Mrs. Brona, I don't know how much she told you about Alice Childress before because I was out of the room for temporarily, but you know, I could say that Alice Childress has written plays and, and these books which I've shown you, novels, and she's a marvelously talented woman, one on whom I depend. Uh, I think if anything happened to Alice Childress, I would disappear. I just couldn't take it. You know, she's one that I draw sustenance from. We don't talk that much, but there's a certain sense of knowing that she's there. And I feel about her as if she's something spiritual and above and beyond the ordinary. And she certainly is. I don't just feel this way. And I happen to know this. So. <laughs> I'm very, I'm so grateful to her for her friendship, and I'm so 
appreciative of the influence she has on my life. Her honesty is impeccable. She's a fantastically honest person and a great artist. I think one of the greatest on the American scene today. And I must repeat that, Alice, I think you're a great artist. <laughs> Thank you, I think you are. You surely are, and you've achieved things in many ways. She's won an Obie Award for her, her um, uh, Trouble in Mind, and she's written Wedding Band, that's a, a movie, uh, oh dear, not a movie, a play, and Wine in the Wilderness. And um, my goodness, her mom's play, Moms, that was the name of it, which is at the Hudson Guild earlier, uh, when was it in the year? Yes, earlier in the year. About was about three months ago. I, I don't know. It should have won all sorts of awards. It was just, you couldn't get in to see it. But I was lucky. I got down there the first day the tickets were on sale and I got my ticket. But it was a marvelous play based on the life of Moms Mabley. So I don't know what she's working on now, but she's marvelously productive and a splendid, a fine, fine artist. And I do want to share these three little vignettes from the book with you. The first one I'm going to read is for the pocketbook game. Marge, day's work is an education. Well, I mean working in different homes, you learn much more than if you were steady in one place. I tell you, it really keeps your mind sharp trying to watch for what folks will put over on you. <laughs> what? No, Marge. I do not want to help shell no beans, but I'd be more than glad to stay and have supper with you, and I'll wash your dishes after. Is that all right? Who been putting anything over on who? Oh, yes, it's like this. I've been working for Mrs. F, Mrs. E, one day a week for several months, and I noticed that she has some peculiar ways. Well, there was only one thing that really bothered me, and that was her pocketbook habit. No, not those little novels. I mean her purse, her handbag. <laughs> Marge, she got a big old pocketbook with two long straps on it. And wherever I go there, she'd be propped up in a chair with her handbag double wrapped tight around her wrist. <laughs> and from room to room, she'd roam with that purse hugged to her bosom. Yes, dear. This happens every time. No, there's nobody there but me and her. Marge, I say nothing to hurt her, nothing to her. It's her purse, ain't it? She can hold on to it if she wants to. <laughs> I held my peace for months trying to figure out how I'd make my point. Well, bless, well, bless best, today was the day. Please, Marge, keep shelling the beans so we can eat. I know you listening, but you listen with your ears, not your hands. Well, anyway. I was almost ready to go home when she steps in the room hanging onto her bag as usual and says, Mildred, will you ask the super to come up and fix the kitchen faucet? Yes, Mrs. E, I says, as soon as I leave. Oh, no, she says, he may be gone by then. Please go on now. All right, I says, and out the door I went, still wearing my Hoover apron. I just went down the hall and stood there a few minutes. Then I rushed back to the door and knocked on it as hard and frantic as I could. She flung the door open, saying, What's the matter? Did you see the super? No, I says, gasping for breath. I was almost downstairs when I remembered I left my pocketbook. <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> oh, 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 oh. With that, I dashed in, <laughs> grabbed my purse, and then went down to get the super. <laughs> Later, when I was leaving, she says, real timid, like, Mildred, I hope that you don't think I distrust you because I cut her off real quick. That's all right, Mrs. E, I understand. Because if I paid anybody as little as you pay me, I'd hold on to my pocketbook too. <laughs> Marge, you fool, Marge, look at it. You're gonna drop the beans on the floor. One more, just uh, two little ones, but uh, really, I really do want to share these with you because <laughs> Well, Marge, this is the health card thing. Well, Marge, I started an extra job today. Just wait, girl. Don't laugh yet. Just wait till I tell you. The woman seems real nice. Well, you know what I mean. She was pretty nice anyway. Shows me this and shows me that but she was real cautious about loading on too much work for the first morning, and she stopped short when she caught the light in my eye. Come this afternoon, I was busy waxing woodwork when I noticed her hovering over me kind of timid-like. She passed me once and smiled, and then she turned and blushed a little. I put down the wax can and gave her an inquiring look. The lady takes a deep breath and comes up again with, do you live in Harlem, Mildred? Now you know, I expected something more than that after all the hesitating. I had already given her my address, so I didn't quite get the idea behind the question. Yes, Mrs. Jones, I answered, that's where I live. Well, she backed away, and I retired to the living room, and I could hear her and the husband just a buzzing. <laughs> a little later on, I was in the kitchen washing glasses. I looked up, and there she was in the doorway, looking kind of strained around the gills. First she stuttered, then she stammered, and after beating all around the bush, she comes out with, do you have a health card, Mildred? That let the cat out of the bag. I thought real fast. Honey, my brain was running on wheels. Yes, Mrs. Jones, I said, I have a health card. Now, Marge, this is a lie. I do not have a health card. I'll bring it tomorrow. I add real sweet like. She beams like a chromium platter, and all you could see above her tasseled blouse, her housecoat, is smile. Mildred, she says, I don't mean any offense, but one must be careful, mustn't one. Well, all she got from me was solid agreement. Sure, I said, indeed one must. I'm glad you are so understanding, because I was just worried and studying on how I was going to ask you for yours. <laughs> and of course, you'll let me see one from your husband and one from each of the children, three children. Ooh, by this time, she was the same color as a housecoat, with what, which is green. But I continue on, since I have to handle laundry and make beds, you know. She stops me right there, and after excusing herself, she scurries from the room and has another conference with hubby. Inside of 15 minutes, she was back. Mildred, you don't have to bring a health card. I'm sure it will be all right. I looked up real casual, kind of, and said, on second thought, your folks look real clean, too. <laughs> so when she smiled, and I smiled, and then she smiled again, 
And oh, stop laughing so loud, Marge. Everybody on this bus is staring. Luisa Venezuela will be the uh, will speak, and uh, Mary Gordon will uh, summarize and bless us and send us on our way. My mother, Luisa Mercedes Levinson, would be here with us today. She would have enjoyed this very much. She's in Buenos Aires. Uh, she, she would be. My Thank you. Okay. My mother, Luisa Mercedes Levinson, would be here wearing one of her gorgeous hats and uh, feeling very happy to see all of you. And probably I would have no work at all because she would have done all the talking. <laughs> uh, this is one of the wonderful and frightening for, thing, for me aspects of, of her. This is a very vital, absolutely vital, gorgeous, uh, full of humor woman. And um, I did go through the three stages that Oscar Wilde spoke about when he said that children started admiring their parents, then they uh, judged them, and finally, sometimes, they forgot them, uh, forget them. Uh, forgive is a word. Forgot, forgot would have been my, uh, I don't know, this, this is making this noise. Okay, I think, I think what's happening here is that I'm very scared about the subject. Um, <laughs> I am probably the only writer around who has a mother who is a well-known writer. So that's one of the reasons that I never wanted to write in my life. I really wanted to be an artist. And uh, probably this comes from mother to daughter in this family because my mother was raised to be a musician. And <laughs> she gave uh, concerts, she played the harp, and she gave concerts when she was 10. And probably one of the things I most missed when I was living in Paris in my 20s, I got married very young and I went to live in Paris and started writing seriously then. And what I really missed was my mother uh, playing the harp. Not, not that much of her writing or reading her things to me, but playing the harp. But this was a very literary household, of which I was all the time running away. I started running away when I was five. Um, I was found very near the house. But uh, it was a great adventure for me, and I always thought that one should write adventures, and I would read uh, Salgari and climb trees and be a real tomboy, uh, while all these great Argentine writers were in the house discussing uh, the most important things about literature, such as if one should write with the tu or the vos, that's the Spanish 
second person, the familiar second person, whether you should use the, the colloquial uh, voice or the uh, more respectful and the poetic too. This sounds so old-fashioned now. This is something that's unbearable. But there were Borges and Sabato and Magia and all these, these great men discussing this around my mother who was um, enjoying all that and receiving it in, uh, in a very graceful way. She always thought of herself at that time as a beautiful woman. She never stopped th thinking of herself as a beautiful woman. But she thought of herself as a beautiful woman around who, whom all these uh, great writers moved. And that was true up to a certain moment. Uh, at a certain point, uh, Jorge Luis Borges decided that they would write a short story together and they would publish a book together. This is something that Borges used to do with the beautiful women writers <laughs> <laughs> of Argentina at the time. He did that with Estela uh, Cantos, he did that with Bettina Edelberg, Estela Canto being a great writer, not so much Bettina Edelberg. Uh, so he uh, wrote, he started writing this uh, short story with my mother. And this is one of my first memories of what literature is all about. And it was very festive. What I did was hear these two laugh like crazy in the, in the room where they were writing, in, the, in this uh, living room where they were writing. And they would laugh because they would come out with these very weird ideas. And then when they, they finished, they were very happy because they had written a sentence. A <laughs> sentence. So they were very proud of themselves and having written this one sentence, which was quite funny, I must say. Uh, my mother will always say after that that Borges taught her how to correct and revise and look for the exact word obsessively and really go obsessively into her writing. So there was this book uh, in the verge of being published, and this would be the first time that Luisa Mercedes Levinson was signing with her real name. This is her maiden name, but before that she, uh, she wrote short stories and signed with the name, with the pen name of Lisa Lenson. Because she didn't want really to show that she was a writer. She was sort of afraid of uh, this society the society that was uh, growing under the wing of Victoria Ocampo, who was this great uh, feminist and this great writer, not so much a, um, a fiction writer, she was an essayist, but this great woman of letters who published the magazine Sur and brought to Buenos Aires all the great writers of her time. But even so, uh, women were not supposed, if they wanted to really um, be happy in their lives, uh, to, be write, to be writers. So my mother published under the pen name of Lisa Lenson. But at that moment, she was talked into the idea of, no, well, that was it already. She was quite well known enough to be able to risk things under her name. And she was going to, they were going to publish this book with this one short story they had written between Borges and my mother, which is very funny, but not a good short story at all. And two short stories of Borges and one of the, two of the very important Borges, classic Borges short stories, and two short stories of my mother. Mind you that this was around, by the end of the 50s, Borges was a very important writer to writers. He wasn't well known at all. 
he was very respected by the writers, but not by the people. He wasn't one known. Well, this was a time when he said, well, some years had gone by already, but uh, this were not so far from the times that he said it was so good when he could shake hands with all his readers <laughs> because there were so few. But uh, they were going to publish his book, and suddenly my mother decides to write a, short st a new short story for the book. And she writes what now is one of her classic short stories called The Clearing. And uh, it's a very strong short story. It's a very sexual, very sensuous story. And my grandmother, who was also a very cultivated person, said that she would have much rather had a daughter who was a seamstress <laughs> than a daughter who had written uh, this, this piece of literature. <laughs> this is a thing of which Lisa Mercedes Levinson is very proud now. She tells us something great. But I suppose it must have been very, very hard for her. I had never that uh, horror. I never heard anything of the sort. I started, I published my first short story when I was 19. This, the, my luck was that all these uh, people were around the house. <coughs> and this man that was publishing the, the, the literary magazine Fiction was there, and he very quickly liked it and published it. I don't think my mother ever read it. I think she glimpsed through it, as she does through all my books. I don't, I'm not that sure that um, I have a real valid uh, ear there. But I do have a, a great friend in the sense of fascination, as fascinations go. We are very fascinated, one with the other. So we are all the time, and that's very strange, we're all the time playing with words. Um, we used to have this game when I was very young, little. She would ask things by the wrong name. This is a very crazy thing. This is like having a stroke. And she would say, hand me the telephone. And I knew she wanted a glass of water, for example. <laughs> Or she would say, uh, yes, um, I need uh, a poetry book, and then I would bring her a steak. I don't know. And I knew exactly what she wanted. So, so we, wish we would play this game, one-sided game, uh, when, when, um, when I was very young. And I would cut out the stories that appeared in magazines still when she signed as Lisa Lenson and, and paste them and make this gorgeous, huge, impractical albums of her writer because I so admired this, this mythical idea of writing of which I didn't want to belong at all. I also admired seeing her, and I, I, I still have this portrait in, my, in my, uh, the back of my mind, um, in bed, covered with papers. Well, you couldn't see the blankets, you couldn't see anything. It was always these papers that she was writing in bed, and this was, the, the, this was a, a bedroom full of papers. And I thought 
that, that was marvelous. That was real creation. Uh, now I feel very sloppy. I, 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 I am. I, I do the same, more or less. And, and I can't find my things. And I feel very bad about it. And, and just lately, uh, my mother was very sick. And I was in Buenos Aires. And I asked my daughter, I said, please um, help me clean this room. Let's get people to clean this room. So there were the stacks and stacks and stacks of paper papers and I think we started putting them into trash bags and throwing some away and keeping others. I didn't want to throw away her manuscript so I was being very careful about that. Suddenly I told my daughter, listen, this is incredible. How